Hello, and welcome to What Are You Doing? The podcast that gets to the heart of why people do what they do for a living. Each week, I bring on a new guest from a different field to talk about what they do and why they do it, and the moments in their formative years that set them on the paths they are now. The world of work is relentless. Amidst the ever-increasing pace of modern-day working life, do you ever stand still and think, why do we do this? If so, this podcast is for you. By bringing on interesting, highly motivated guests each week and simply asking them, what are you doing? I hope to develop a deeper, more philosophical conversation about how people find meaning in their lives through work and the experiences in their early years that shape them into what they are now. I hope that whether you're listening to this for insight into your own career or just for personal pleasure, you'll find these conversations as insightful as I have. Now on to the show. Becoming obsessed with the moving image, as his portfolio describes, from the age of 15, Simon has had a fascination with film ever since. From Orson Welles and Ingmar Bergman to David Lynch and Stanley Kubrick, he's taken inspiration from abstract filmmakers that prod and pick at what it means to be human, laying bare the fact that the way humans behave is often absurd and doesn't make much sense at all. With interests stretching from fine art to fashion, he's been influenced by a particular type of creative like Kanye West, who sees clothes, music and films as all part of the same melting pot of artistic expression. He also just so happens to have been my housemate at uni, no coincidence there obviously. With me to discuss his inspirations and what put him on this path, I'm delighted to be sat here with him now. So Simon Dawson, what are you doing? So, that's a big question. Only the big boys on this one. Um, At the moment, I'm currently living in London, East London. Repping. Yeah. um, Hipster massive. Yeah, trying to be, you know, don't really feel like one, but... Imposter syndrome, (laughs) something call that. I mean, that's a whole conversation in itself. But um, (laughs) yeah, um, I'm currently working as a filmmaker and editor at a gallery in Mayfair. Um, Real high-end different world stuff that's um, brow. yeah making um art documentaries short films basically you know content to sell the pieces and sell the gallery to to the public um so yeah it's, it's really good it means that i can be creative every day um in a different way creative in a different way than yeah. we're going to talk about today because I, I feel like i've moved on in some ways from my well my filmmaking practice has evolved often due to economic circumstances the grind yeah um you know we can't we can't all be the artists that we want to be but bohemians yeah yeah live the life like we do have to pay bills but i am looking to go back to that mode of creating personal work and you know i'm settled in my job now i'm enjoying it but i i i do it does make me desire to be creative for myself not just for the man yeah and i th- i think that's definitely something interesting that we will unpick later in terms of the fact that you've moved into something now that's much more commercial compared to what you were doing before and i think that is especially let's face it like the the creative industries are ones that often are you know financially a, a little bit more precarious than many other industries i think that's fair to say so how it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah he says looking at me with glazed eyes <laughs> um it got no money <laughs> yeah um yeah and i think that's something we we should definitely get into in terms of the, the decisions people make and different avenues they go down and, and the uncertainty of a lot of it so i guess what i wanted to get into first was we mentioned it briefly in the intro but talking about your obsession with the moving image since you know 14 15 and i think it's interesting that you explicitly described it at that time um as the moving image i think most people who probably watch film we don't often think of it as that i know i found it quite interesting when you first started showing me films that were perhaps a little bit more out there and you could see especially people who made films in the early 20th century and you could see all the stills and it kind of does seem weird when you perceive it as the moving image 
And I think I wanted to ask you, how did you transition from being a kind of casual enjoyer of film to somebody who saw it as that? Because I kind of, when you say the moving image, I see that as someone who they really want to understand how a film is made. And obviously, how did you get to that point where you wanted to understand that and eventually make things yourself? So I've always been, I've always had a, a kind of artist inside me living in there deep down (laughs) ready to be unleashed yeah take that as you will um and i i made little stop motion films when i was younger i had uh i I remember i went to this like animation course when i was like eight and like at the time i didn't think much of it but thinking back like that really did spark something um and i would i always drew and you know created well, I wouldn't exactly call it art, but I I doodled and things like that. So I've always had that creative side to me. Um, and I didn't, as everyone says, I didn't really think I could be in the... I didn't even know what the film industry was. I didn't think it was a thing um, until I was really starting to consider what I wanted to do when I grew up. And that at just that time, I watched the film The Shining by Stanley Kubrick. Sure. And... I kind of watched it and I was like this is insane I don't really know what's going on so many things are happening that you can't really explain things beyond just the plot ABC guy goes to a hotel kills his family you need the bit in there that you can't just jump from guy goes to a hotel kills his family you need to figure out why he's doing that and it doesn't give you all the pieces like you know obviously in an obvious way that certain Hollywood films do. So that was kind of the film that sparked this creative, not creative, this exploration of how films can be an art form and not plot driven and convey certain things beyond just normal plot. So I remember I, I watched that film and I was like, I have no idea what's going on here, but I love it. And I watched this, the sounds, the sounds of little Danny yeah. driving his trike around yeah. the, I mean, he, the hotel. Kubrick just world building. Yeah. Just on another level. The, uh, yeah, just, just, I mean, the soundtrack, unbelievable. Yeah. Jack Nicholson's performance. Like, there's so much going on that is not, is beyond what you would think a film needs. Yeah. But that kind of world building and beyond the surface is for me now, after seeing that film and going on this exploration, that is what film is. So I I basically was like, I don't know what's going on in this film. I'm going to find out. <laughs> so I started reading online. I started reading theories. You know, this, I kind of look back, well, I look, I look at films now and I don't like being led to a certain conclusion. Yeah, I like having yeah. my own interpretation of what films are yeah. and what they mean. But back then... I really needed to be guided in a certain direction and I didn't know what subtext was yeah so I'd watch a film like The Shining and be like typing Google what does this mean and I found this guy Rob Eger film critic oh yeah well actually not even critic just film academic observer yeah probably goes far too deep into what things mean sure um you know, overanalyzes, but yeah. that I was very much in a mode of overanalyzing back then. Yeah. And I found, and basically, I found out that there's this whole plot beneath the plot. Yeah. That I just watching it for the first time, I never got any of that. And then watching it again with these things in mind, I got the whole subtext about it being a metaphor for the colonization of the U.S. and and how the hotel was kind of hiding all these bodies of Native Americans who were killed by colonial power. And then that leads into the 20s with loads of... I'm going to butcher this, but probably Roosevelt stuff and things. And and then also subtext about the Holocaust and like certain brands. Like the the typewriter is made by a German brand that was involved in the Holocaust and things like this. Wow, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, just like small details that lead to a bigger picture of meaning that the artist may or may not be trying to tell you, but 
he creates all these he puts in all these things through production design cinematography plot dialogue everything to lead the viewer through the film to find their own conclusions about what things mean so but it, it, it basically almost feels like you open the door to narnia and sort of realize i want to figure out how to navigate this That's i want to know more about this like you just you found yourself just you'd fallen into a world almost without realizing and you're almost like your mind is just clamoring to how can I understand this as best as possible? That's but I, exactly I, it. Yeah. I think that's quite interesting what you're saying about that you felt that you didn't see the subtext because I would I would sort of think would you not say that there's an argument that you did see it but couldn't articulate it at the time? Yeah, well that's it. Like I saw something. Yeah. I just had no idea what it was. Yeah. And I didn't have the the mental tools to decode these symbols and translate it into a coherent view or anything like that. Like I didn't have the tools to analyze film in this way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I've kind of moved beyond, I mean, I, I still love overanalyzing films a little bit, yeah, but I, I, yeah. I'm definitely more, well, I kind of got led from this overanalytical period through I don't know if we want to talk about this yet, but through David Lynch films where they, he kind of is like, all right, leave all that, leave all those tools at the door and come come into this with a completely open mind. And he, he actively discourages people from finding like a definitive view of what a film is. And he'll be in interviews and say, someone will say, does this mean this? Does this mean that? And he just goes, no. Or he just says, it doesn't matter at all. Like what you think is what it is, which... I find really refreshing. So I was going to say because in that sense, surely you've you've come back full circle, no? Because you've you're a, you're a kid who's watching these films, and you're perhaps you're feeling all these kind of emotions while watching it, but you're not sure how to articulate that, and so you go through this phase where perhaps you look back and you see it as overanalyzing. However, you see it, where you're just analyzing it a lot more, and then you're watching David Lynch, and you're almost kind of going back to. No, roots, I, yeah, yeah. yeah, trying to almost suspend, get rid of those preconceptions. Yeah, yeah, and I think what you also and I appreciate kind of... filmmakers now who kind of make you try and reevaluate your like you go into the film thinking a certain way and then come out of it with a whole new mode of thinking. Yeah, I, I think Mark Kermo talks about that a lot as well, where he talks about watching films where he tries to, I think he says, suspend his critical faculties. He always says that. And I think that's really, he says um, when he watched Mamma Mia, the one with Piers Brosnan in it, and he said that he was watching it and analysing it and analysing it and seeing all these things wrong with it. And then he had this moment about two thirds of the way through the film where he said he just got lost in the universe. And he said it was one of the most pleasurable watching experiences he's ever had watching a film. And um, I thought that was really interesting. I think that's interesting that you you talk about the fact that that's how you saw it as a kid. And really, sorry, just to come back to you before we, we move on to something else, I think interesting what you were talking about making things from such a young age because it kind of sounds like you're giving the artist's version of like a kid who ends up becoming like a Royal Navy engineer and they've always tinkered around with cars. Like it sort of sounds like you've always been tinkering around with things, making things. Yeah. And I think that that's often, I feel like when people are really intrinsically motivated to do what they do, it comes from those experiences. Like people talk about Roger Federer as a tennis player. You know, they say that he's been playing tennis since he was about three, four years old. You know, the same with Serena Williams. I mean, do those things still stick with you now? Do you still think about those things when you're creating at the moment i want to just preface when when we was when you were just talking about mark commode and saying how he turns off his brain for certain films and like gets rid of these things uh i, I don't want this interview to go too down the road of like everything has a meaning everything yeah. i i'm very highbrow everything is yeah, you yeah. know super analytical and yeah. you know uh, the, only this art is important like yeah. I've I feel like I've developed beyond that to a point where I can appreciate I mean I've always appreciated certain things but I I can appreciate art and film not just for its high mindedness and specific creation of meaning like 
I I have my own guilty pleasures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but the question, I mean, do you? And I know perhaps this seems tangential, but I think we'll we'll come back to what we were talking about just before. But I think that is interesting that you mentioned that because do you even see it as a guilty pleasure now? You know, because I I look at that and I feel like, say for example, with a film like Mamma Mia. I feel like that film serves the purpose of entertainment. I watch it because I, I just feel joy when I, and I haven't actually seen Mamma Mia, Hairspray. but I'm just going off of... Exactly, yeah, yeah. And I think if that is the kind of art that that is, then that's fair enough. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I, I really enjoy the um, uh, the two Rush Hour films. Well, there's three films, but I watched the two ones with Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan. And, you know, I, I think those films are absolutely hilarious. And I know when I'm watching them that obviously it's totally different to watching a Lynch or a Kubrick but I think if someone were to come along and be snobby about those things yeah. it's just uh... yeah I don't want to come across as snobby as no 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 not at all and I, and I don't think that you do. I, I think actually you, you seem the opposite to me that you're saying that moving away from this sort of purely analytical way of looking at film do you think that's kind of the way that say for example a YouTube channel like Cinema Sins the way that they see film, where they say, here's a hundred yeah. things wrong with this film. You think it's that kind of uh, mindset, do you think? As in... That way of looking at film, that kind of, oh, look, here's a mistake that just happened yeah. there, here's a mistake that just exactly. happened there. It's yeah. very hyper-analytical. Yeah, I I kind of reject that nowadays in the, in the sense that one... Yeah. I mean, I, I'm very much a proponent of you get out of a film what you want and what you put into it. And I, I do... The older I get and the more I consume and the more life experience I have, I I appreciate things more on like a personal side as opposed to what they what went into them or what they are as an art piece. I, I like just going to a place or going to a thing and experiencing it on my own terms and not not diminishing it with ideas of oh this this thing could have been better or this like Yeah because a lot of the time you're experiencing you experience things and you're like wow this is amazing and then you look at it you like you you think about it and you you're like oh i should be more analytical i should be more critical and then you kind of kill that initial experience by thinking oh i should think that this is should be better but in in the moment you're not thinking about those things a lot sometimes you are some things do stick out but I like just experiencing things on their own merits, but I don't know if yeah. that's where we're going. But and I, and oh, but and also in terms of like YouTube channels and and things like that, like I guess I appreciated back in the day being led to certain conclusions and being told, you know, there's so much subtext in Kubrick films. Yeah. But I kind of, I mean, they have their place, but I dislike the kind of videos that are like, this is what wait. Oh, ending explained to yeah. blah blah film. It's like the whole when I a lot of films I watch, I'm like, I really don't want to look up what someone someone else thinks about how the ending specifically meant because yeah. it's like it's very much leading you to a certain conclusion that like may not be what the artist intended or yeah. I mean I guess it it is how I got started, so I guess there is merit to it, but. I, I'm not in the mode of being led to certain conclusions nowadays. But do you also think that because you come across to me as someone who you're very comfortable in your own interpretations of film? Yeah. And I feel like, say for example, I watched uh, The Lighthouse recently and after watching a video that was an ending explained video, um, it talked a lot about all the stuff about the uh, Prometheus and the mythology involved in and, and Robert Eggers an interview where he talks about that sort of stuff and I kind of found that when I rewatched that part of the film I, I did feel like I found it a richer experience yeah. after having looked at that stuff so I do same think with The Shining I've watched yeah. that about 10 times now and yeah. I especially when I watched it the first time and then read stuff about it and then I spotted more things yeah, I mean, it, it has its place with certain films. I, I think so, yeah. The same with, like, watching Clockwork Orange yesterday. Like, I could feel as I was watching it that I was enjoying it, but I do feel like... It's kind of like needing a companion book. When you yeah. get, like, a companion reader to Shakespeare, I think I think it sometimes oh, yeah, those, yeah. those things are definitely definitely needed. Yeah, and yeah. I, I love films where you can watch it again and again and find new things. Like, yeah. those are the best kind of films where there is enough con content in the film where you can just watch it and find new things. I mean, that's why I love Lynch films. Yeah. And I love reading all of people's theories about it, but then at the end of the day, I come to my own conclusions with yeah. things. 
Um, yeah, and and I think that's a a great um, that progresses really well into what I wanted to talk about next, which was why you are drawn to sort of perhaps people could say more abstract films, more experimental films in general, um, because you were just sort of talking about there about the relationship between analysing film and sort of relying on your own interpretation of it. And you mentioned it right there about films like with Lynch, you know, like we watched Mulholland Drive together, I remember years ago. And I remember just watching the scenes. Years ago, well, It just, <laughs> it was, wasn't yeah. it? It was. Um, and just feeling weird. It just made me feel really weird. And I, I just had no idea how to interpret it. And it was almost like I could feel my critical faculties trying to latch on to something and it, it was like just like trying to catch a salmon like you put your hands right oh it's gone yeah and, and i think at what point did you first start becoming really attracted to that kind of stuff because i would say even though i know that david lynch you would say that he is a mainstream filmmaker right i mean he's massively popular isn't he I would yeah say that he's probably certain a- films of his are hollywood blockbusters yeah no, but he's very much the reason I love him in a sense is because he skirts the line between mainstream and the most experimental you would, you stuff would, you can get. You like, wouldn't say that he's an indie filmmaker though, would you? Well, like, he, he's, he's made films by himself with his own money yeah. without studio help shooting without a script for like a year at a time. So he, yeah, he's an independent and a Hollywood filmmaker, which is a, a space that not many filmmakers and fine artists Phil nowadays yeah so, sure yeah i mean i could talk all day but yeah yeah so i mean so what i mean i've mentioned stanley um lynch lynch but i know that there's also you know you've talked about stanley kubrick there's Werner herzog and we could go you know we could we could li- yeah exactly we could we could go off and off and off but i mean what what drew you to them originally and I think in keeping with what you were talking about earlier about moving away from just pure analysis of film and your kind of raw feeling that you have when you when you watch something. Yeah, so I mean, I think we've kind of talked about it. It's it's kind of growing my own toolkit. And I mean, my degree helped with this. I, I did a degree in film, which a lot of it was theoretical based and gave me, and going to seminars and talking about films and basically yeah giving me confidence in my own tools i keep saying the word tools but mental whole lot of tools yeah <laughs> you've been tinkering from a I'm young a, age i'm a bit of a tool tools. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah. it, it gave me a confidence in my own mind when it comes to art and how i can you know appreciate it on its own terms like and do you feel like that particular type of film it requires sort of more confidence would you say precisely because it is a bit more out there definitely i mean i this leads on to like i kind of moved on from not moved on i've always watched all of these things at the same time but i i moved from them to watching like proper experimental fine art short films which a lot of the time get rid of a narrative and even representation in some forms whatsoever like they're in a sense like forms of like abstract expressionism and yeah leads on to my love of visual art as well but there's and with those things you have to stand in front of the art stand in front of the canvas watch the film and not you're kind of like thrown in there without a rope Mm. you have to yeah, I mean, I've already said, appreciate what you feel in the moment. Basically, I went to this Damien Hirst exhibit recently, which was, um, it's called the, something about fact paintings, and it was basically his recreations of uh, photographs with like incredible precision with paintbrushes. Um, you can debate whether it was him or his assistants or, you know. But it almost doesn't matter because he's a conceptual artist yeah. who his kind of form of art making and the art that he brings into the world isn't so much based on beauty and, you know, high-minded ideals of aesthetics, but it's it's about drawing the viewer, the spectator's mind and thoughts to a specific element of reality and experience that he wants you to be drawn into so like there was a 
there was a tent like a gazebo kind of thing with a table with like instant coffee and like a radio and basically a like a tea tent that you would see on the side of a like under 11s football game right okay yeah and he was like i i watched the video where he was talking about it and he was like oh yeah i went to this thing and i recreated it completely like down to the dust on the boxes and people were like oh he's a hack like in the comments i kind of enjoyed reading the comments for that because it's like this is not this this is a hack i kind (laughs) of appreciate that because at the end of the day it's just he's not trying to create a specific artistic kind of experience that someone like jeff no no jeff coons is someone like a renaissance master trying to give you a divine beauty yeah whereas damien hurst in these sense is trying to lead you to thinking about something that exists in reality yeah thinking about it from a different angle or in a different way than you would if you were just at an under 11s football game yeah in the tea tent and you're just thinking about the cup of tea that you're getting you're you're thinking when you're seeing it in a gallery space you're viewing it as it the element this element of reality taken out of its normal context and put into a gallery space yeah almost seems a little bit kind of um i was going to say voyeuristic i know not voyeuristic in the sense that you're looking at like a candid shot that you know a a, a photograph of someone who doesn't know they've had a picture taken but as in he's taking something that is from like an 11 aside football and he's almost like as you say like taking it out of the everyday and putting it into something to be exhibited like the dadas and the duchamp and with the with the urinal yeah it's like he's not i mean you could say he's being a trickster and and you know trolling the art world and everything but at the end of the day he's he's just showing you or trying to get you as a spectator to yeah. see something in reality from a different angle which is the way that i see experimental films and artworks mm. nowadays i i try and kind of step outside myself and all the the cultural conditioning of oh this is an art this is yeah. you know useless and just fully engage with my feelings in that moment mm. and like not just kind of it's kind of like a meditation like yeah, yeah let them sure. f- flow through me think about it for a minute without any pretense of what you know and I, it kind of makes me li- like i'm stood in the gallery looking looking at these paintings and kind of or you know sculptures as he calls them and like kind of laughing because because it's funny how people and society the fact that they put loads of you know a, a massive monetary value on these things yeah like and when and then i'm sat stood in the gallery two meters from this thing looking at it and trying to get rid of all these extraneous values and appreciate it for what it is right in front of me at this moment yeah. and get rid of all that and yeah i don't i've that's the kind of mode that i'm in when i view art at the moment i don't yeah was this related to what we were talking about? What no, I think, well, it's related to what we were talking about, experimental film and why you're drawn to that in particular. Oh, yeah. And I think more more abstract forms of art. And I think it's interesting that you're talking about that in terms of what Hearst has done there with something very, very specific. And it's kind of brought to mind something that, um, again, I was listening to Mark Kermode, who was doing his review of Moonlight. And he mentioned at some point in the review that he was saying that he feels that the best stories are ones that are specific as possible, but their message is often universal. And that he said, the more specific a story is, the broader an audience can be for it. And I think that's what I've noticed in terms of, I think a a Kubrick or a Lynch. I think the things that I find similar in them is that you often get these stories, as you say, that they're very specific, but there's so much subtext involved because the story being specific is often to reveal something deeper that is much more universal. Yeah. And I think, do, do you absolutely. think that's part of the appeal for you? That yeah. And that, that's kind of a bit of a struggle that I've gone through with my personal work where I've, I've before, I mean, I've not been entirely happy with everything I've created. Cause I, looking back, I've, I've been like, Oh, I've tried, I've been trying to tell a message that's, I've been trying to tell a specific message 
and not a universal one through a more abstract form of you know filmmaking whereas i should be sometimes more specific with the filmmaking to tell a more universal message like you said like because i there's definitely a, a danger with preaching to your audience and trying to make like you know going back to before trying to get them to a specific viewpoint yeah leading them to yeah it, which yeah. personally i you know i don't like that like i mean a lot of us we watch things and we're like oh that's way too pretentious like that that's trying to make me feel something that is just not natural whereas it's better to show people something and then let them come to their own conclusions yeah. about a, a, an issue or something yeah because instead of ramming it down their throats and I think that is something that is universal as well because I remembered when I was doing my dissertation and I remembered sitting with my tutor and him just constantly saying like you're just trying to go too broad with this and I was thinking and what, oh, but I what make... degree did you do? Uh, this was in history so yeah this is a degree in history and when I was trying to do the dissertation I remembered looking at example dissertations and they were about things that were so specific and I remember thinking and I know that you probably say that this is is wrong you know it's an incredibly interesting subject but at the time i would think why are you doing a dissertation on the latrine system in france in the 19 in 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 between 1850 and 1860 or something like it's so specific and i would go to my dissertation tutor and i'd say i want to do a dissertation on the history of oppression or where oppression came from or something and he said you just you just can't you can't narrow that down to anything and i, I realized yeah, that just... those dissertations that were about very specific things actually were about incredibly broad topics it was just that was a vehicle for talking yeah. about those things because like certain aspects of human behavior like minute details or mannerisms or you know the way that we react to things are indicators of the wider way that we think you know yeah. that that everything we do is a small indication of a wider thing like a mental process or, yeah so and i think that comes back to i think what i mentioned in the intro and what i think a lot of experimental film tries to get to which is it's about a risk of sounding pretentious it's about the human condition isn't it I mean we're humans and we make art so everything is you know kind of yeah. goes back to the human condition yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah but you can't I really mean, avoid it <laughs> yeah, I mean yeah. that's what art is we're trying to translate our subjective experience to in a subject well in a more objective way yeah. than the stimuli that we react to what, yeah, we, yeah the stimuli yeah. we take in mm. we we as artists <laughs> it feels funny calling myself an artist but we try and we the people yeah yeah like uh what we do to when we make art is trying to translate this subjective personal experience to a wider canvas that so we can show this to other people and yeah. com communicate it that's i mean all art is is communication at the end of the day it's communicating experience so yeah for sure and so how have you you mentioned at the beginning of this show what you're doing now and that what you're doing is much more sort of commercial and very different to the sorts of art that we've just talked about so talk a little bit about how you transitioned into that after you left uni and and sort of how you found it making now where you where you're at with it i feel like after graduating i was kind of in the wilderness for a while as well, we a lot of people are yeah i mean I envy people who actually not anymore but I I would envy people who had something lined up after uni and walked out and were like cool there we go this is exactly what I'm gonna do um I didn't think I was in the headspace at that point to be like this is exactly what I'm gonna do and yeah that to my detriment but yeah I was in the wilderness I was trying to hold on to this dream of being a filmmaker because that that really animates you know a lot of things i do i won't say everything i do you know i i live yeah. a life outside of that yeah. quite a substantial one yeah, yeah. i'm not always switched on artistically as much as yeah. i'd like to be you know i appreciate artists who live the art life such as <laughs> there he goes again david lynch yeah. kanye west david bowie but even, Andy even they don't right even, even well they some don't, of surely. them i mean lynch he literally spends all day painting like from when he wakes up to, like everything is everything is the art you know sure i could never do that yeah i just don't have to but 
I I held on to this dream of being a filmmaker. So I I I went freelance for a bit. With I mean I was living in Wiltshire, so there was I I kind of was a bit lost and was trying to. I felt pressure to get a job, like a conventional job, whilst also being like if I don't get a job in filmmaking then I'm going to lose it quickly I wasn't really sure of myself because you know to be a filmmaker or an artist and work in the creative industries is very much like putting yourself out there to be judged and Mm. like putting a gladiator (laughs) going into the gladiator ring and having the (laughs) the film gods put their thumb up at the (laughs) end and yes you know thumb up thumb down and Russell Crowe standing at the other end being your competitor the other people in the film industry and you just are you not (laughs) entertaining essentially and you're thinking how the fuck am I going to get to the end of this are we allowed to swear I I mean this is yeah this is uh, this is explicit so you go for it not for the kids this one (laughs) so my first sexual experience (laughs) yeah yeah um yeah, so I, I was very unsure of myself, but I, I, I kept up filmmaking. I, I've I've definitely got in a mode of like creating, you know, not seriously, but like always trying things out, yeah. you know, doing little editing, editing projects, short film, shooting something, mm. testing out editing. Yeah. Um, uh, and then I kind of had a, a, well, I had a... Um, internship opportunity at a studio in Swindon which is near where I live in Wiltshire small town um, which was a great stepping stone because I, I was working on commercial projects and then through that there was a opportunity to submit to this BBC Arts new creatives funding scheme where they give you f- like five grand to make a short film so that that kind of kept the dream alive of creating creating sh- film filmmaking art so yeah, I, I, I did that for a while and then I had an opportunity and that kind of, yeah, kept it alive. I had the opportunity to move to London um, without anything really set up. I kind of, my friend was moving out of their place. There was a position in my old frat, flatmate from uni's house yeah. and I was kind of like, I've built up through like savings a, you know, nest egg to be able to make a leap of faith, move to London, yeah. try it out, freelance, work as a runner. That was kind of the idea then. I mean, how, how did you how did you feel at the time? Nerve-wracking? Or of what course, was the, uh, yeah. like, shitting myself. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and that was kind of a hard period. Like, I moved, I moved to London and was like, you know what, I'm going to, you know, hit the ground running, get all these yeah. jobs, and it wasn't really like that. I had a few connections. I did a few, like, music video shoots, mm. um... You know, little to no pay, uh, and I was like, you know, this will, this will keep me going. And I was kind of like, right, I have six months to get it going. Sure. Be and then if that if it doesn't work out in that time, back to square one, moving back in with the parents. Yeah. But I was that was kind of the, the thing that I set myself, and that work was few and far between, mm. and it was it was a very difficult period. I mean, I loved living in London, still do even during the pandemic where you can't do anything but yeah that was a hard period and I, I kept this idea of being a filmmaker alive I, I worked runner jobs just emailing everyone that I knew and being like can I do this can I work with you can I shadow you keeping up blah 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 blah, yeah. blah. and I built up a little bit of a network I I but then in the back of my mind I was like I need a full-time job I need to I always had this kind of yeah. fear of being freelance and not having a consistent high well, yeah consistent stream of income yeah yeah of course i mean yeah. it's the 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 fears of being an artist you know um artist I, I, it was not even art it was i was a runner on films trying to balance creating a living trying to live my life and yeah. be secure with trying to be personally artistic it wasn't really i was i, I did a few personal jobs and I did some like things where I was the artist, like or well, not even artist, but like filmmaker, like videography things. But yeah, I didn't really get to be my personal filmmaker at that point because I was too busy focused on trying to live, you know, 
that so that very much got in the way but yeah. i basically i i don't know what i would do other than be a filmmaker like yeah. i've thought about it before yeah. but i've never come to a complete conclusion about if i did that if i didn't do this then i could do this and that is a great motivator right yeah i, I think for some because i think imagine somebody in your position who their situation is getting more and more precarious and perhaps <laughs> they've got a dad who is pressuring them to go into law or they've got i don't know some uh, kind luckily, of i mean some not course that they were thinking of doing that they yeah. feel pushed towards oh, yeah. there's plenty of people that probably would and for good you know and a lot of them fall back on that yeah yeah, yeah. exactly and, and for a lot of them to be fair understandably might have good reason to do so you yeah know? so and they might prefer it you know yeah it's but not like, for everyone because I, I, it'd be good to hear you go into that a little bit because you're, I don't know if you remember we had a conversation a while back where you were talking about you worked in a Morrison's a while ago yeah, uh, in, in Wiltshire and I remembered you telling me about I thought it was really interesting you were talking about an experience you had where you were serving someone who was or you either were serving them or you saw someone who was from your school yeah. and it was all these years later from when you were in school and you were looking at clearly they looked like from what they were wearing like they were doing okay for themselves like they were doing all right and you were looking at them and you were kind of you i remember you saying at the time not that you were doubting doing what you wanted to do but kind of there was that feeling of god like he's the same age as me yeah. but he looks like he's made a lot more I'm money i'm 23 already. and i haven't you know i'm i'm still at the very bottom of the ladder yeah working in more yeah so basically i thought i was getting a kind of foothold in london i was getting a few music video jobs but at, at the same time making barely any money really not secure and not in a very good place mentally but you know hanging on by a thread and i was reaching the end of my okay six months if this doesn't work I'll move six back. months by the way was this six months because your tenancy was six months was that uh, yeah and it's like the renewal but also I I was like money was dwindling yeah. and confidence and I basically I was like I think I'll get a job like I think I'll be secure by the end of the six months and I kind of wasn't um, and I had a I, I went through like a extensive interview process with like more than one thing where I thought I got to the end and had all the right you know uh signs that i was gonna get the job and then just you know back to square one yeah which really you know sometimes was like okay is this the best thing i should be doing Um, but i can imagine that is not to sound you know super cliche in terms of oh i can imagine that really made you stronger like real strength of character or whatever but i can imagine i mean being in a situation that daunting i can imagine now you do feel a lot stronger and, and independent having been through that right uh <laughs> no <laughs> i'm still at the square one guy. No, i mean i'm glad i i'm glad i went through that because i've had the i've had the rejections i've had yeah. you know all this stuff yeah. and it, i'm better for having that definitely i've learned from it i've mm-hmm. learned to not hong, hold, hold on to that stuff as much like there is going to be failures there's going to be rejections i've had a lot of them essentially i was at the end of this six months end of the rope bad place yeah and then the pandemic hit <laughs> and then the pandemic hit so the, so the job that you have now did you because I, I can't remember from the conversations we had before actually did you have that job when the pandemic no, started? No, no. no so pandemic hit and i had nothing i had i had freelance work that I've was got nothing left <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna do an impression there as well um but Beat yeah it. i was i had inconsistent freelance work thinking that i was on the cusp of getting something more regular Mm. and higher paying um but i was still at the bottom of the ladder and i was like oh god and then the pandemic hit and uh you know freelance film work was gone like there was nothing yeah (laughs) anyway so that happened it just totally ian beeled it was like (laughs) massive crisis yeah um and yeah everything stopped i mean i was more focused on the world events than my person like i was scared you know everyone was scared back then especially living in london it was like oh my god am i gonna die essentially yeah yeah yeah, for sure but yeah that was kind of a reflection point and my tendency was reaching to the end so i was like you know i'm just gonna cut my losses move back home um and yeah try and pick up the pieces once this is over because there's really no point trying to live you know be a creative 
in this climate when you can't even get any jobs because nothing you know we're in lockdown so i moved back home got a job in a morrison's as you said earlier working as a cashier in a supermarket which i actually really enjoyed um yeah but it was good it was good to kind of i mean i was hitting a kind of crescendo of oh fuckness at that point anyway and then the pandemic added to it and i would imagine for for such a long time as well being in a position of instability i think yeah. you face it like coming home and getting a job where you have normal hours yeah that yeah, must oh, have felt like yeah. giving you a lot of stability at the time yeah and yeah it was very much a a, a a sense that i could reset and focus on um how to make a career and do do filmmaking in a less pressurized environment um yeah and as you're saying i was i was looking at people from my hometown and being like oh fuck i'm not in the position they're in they've they've they're 23 they've been in their jobs they've been in the working world for several years and they've got a stable position and that also looking at people like that and thinking about things made me even more convinced that i wanted to do filmmaking as a profession yeah. and that i did not want to be stuck in wiltshire forever yeah. working jobs like that i lo- i like the job because it was enjoyable and being with people yeah. and talking to customers but at the same time i was like okay i can only do this for a small amount of time yeah and i think it has a short it has a short shelf life if you're interested in something else doesn't yeah. it it's- yeah definitely so basically i did that and then i got at the end of 2020 um my girlfriend was still living in london trying to be a fashion photographer and she had a spot opening up in her um flat so essentially the repeat of the year before (laughs) there was another spot six months yeah (laughs) yeah well yeah so and um there was a spot opening up and almost a year to the day well four four days after a year and four days after I moved to London for the first time, yeah. I moved to London again. Yeah. With, but this time I was slightly more secure because I I transferred to the Morrison's in West London. Yeah. And now that's stability. Yeah. <laughs> that's as the price. Yeah. Even though it wasn't as the. But yeah. you say um, that there, you get fired. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> um. So yeah, that was that was really good, and that gave me a platform. I mean, actually, we were still in lockdown, so I couldn't couldn't do much more than plot and scheme but yeah. and uh, working morrisons but that gave me a level of stability and from that happiness that i was able to focus on what i wanted to do and yeah. i like to say that my job i got my job through hard work and you know all this stuff but in the at the end of the day like luck plays a role in these things an incredible amount no I'd say just merit like, you yeah. know we live in a meritocracy I think you just that was raw hard work is what that exactly, was yeah. and people that don't get that they're just not working hard enough you know exactly <laughs> privilege <laughs> privilege of hard work <laughs> the pri- um, yeah and basically my friend co my collaborator from uni who I worked with called me up and he had a position he needed an editor for um, basically the team at the gallery needed an editor and they were like I've worked with this guy I know what he's about so I'm going to call him up and yeah from there I got the job as an editor and filmmaker for this gallery yeah. um, it, it felt a bit weird kind of falling into it but I feel like I've kind of proved myself yeah. from there or not I mean maybe not that sounds a bit big headed but like I feel like I've justified my existence in this job yeah sure beyond but that that's how life goes you know like i'll be i'll be grafting struggling despairing about getting a job and then everything kind of just falls into place i mean that's yeah 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 sounds like you're basically just conquering that imposter syndrome is what you're saying yeah feeling like you have a place in that world exactly and it's not i mean obviously that 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 getting this job is a culmination of like it's it's not a direct lineage from doing my own personal work i mean it kind of is because that stuff was part of my portfolio and got me the job but i didn't just fall into this job completely randomly like i've 
I got this job because of all my previous work yeah. and me striving to get a job in the industry. Yeah. I mean, I, I was calling him up or texting him and saying, do you have anything for me? So it kind of, yeah, it worked out. Yeah, well, that's why it's interesting, isn't it, when we talk about luck, because often, you know, you'll hear people say this sometimes, won't you, that you say, oh, oh, you're, you're, he's so lucky. How is he so lucky? But I think... You create your own luck. <laughs> yeah. Now that is peak cinema, that is. <laughs> about being lucky is that often, even when you say luck, it's that you've got to you've got to be able to put yourself in the position to even be lucky in the first place do you know what I mean yeah. it's like when someone says oh you always land on your feet or oh you just happen to have met that person and it's but well say for example if you're someone who you're really shy and you don't socialise much you're probably not going to have that opportunity to even meet that person in the first place I think similarly with you in film you say oh luck that I got something but you were doing the grafting before to be networking in the first place anyway and if I didn't live, if I didn't move back to London, I wouldn't be in a position to exactly. have that opportunity as much. Yeah. I mean, I, it feels weird talking about to, about myself in these terms, and the people who are involved in my life in this way are probably going to watch this and have a different opinion. <laughs> yeah, or, um, you know, think that I'm. Yeah. Anyway, this bloke's a tosser. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's my perspective yeah. on uh, how I am, where I am, and yeah, creating creating every day basically just uh working out those creative muscles which is is a good thing and it's yeah. getting me in the position where i want to create personal work again i mean i've got some several coals embers in the fire yeah um but yeah i mean i'm i'm in a position of creative comfort at this moment and yeah. i i do it being in a position of creative comfort does spur me to pull myself out of that comfort zone in a way but it's it's cool it's it's a far cry from where i was you know trying to make it the first time and being in a position of complete insecurity which was not yeah not easy to handle and the financial security certainly helps doesn't it yeah yeah yeah, which it's not just like financial in the you know monetary sense but in the like well like i'm getting paid a, you know a living wage gives you a platform for the work that yeah. I'm doing which kind of validates the choice of going down this and it's like also there's there's value in being on the first like I, I'm on this the ladder now like I'm I have a secure place on that ladder I have yeah. a full-time job where I can move on to the next stage yeah. whereas before I was kind of like stepping on that ladder every time I got a new job I mean you know doing little baby steps but it's kind of the universal idea isn't it of like uh, you know money makes money isn't it it's like when people say about getting on the property ladder it's it's about the fact that buying crypto yeah yeah so I moved back to London and became a bitcoin investor (laughs) it's going really well (laughs) no but we were saying about you know that's that's the part of why people find it so difficult to get on the property ladder I think it's the same as getting your foot in the door of a company isn't it is that when you don't have an asset whatever the asset is it's almost like you've got nothing to sell isn't it yeah and, and so now that you've got that foot in the door and hopefully the asset as well is the years creating things doing odd jobs like even when I was in Morrison's I was talking to customers and I yeah. got several film jobs just from talking to customers and telling them about I mean I'm a bit of a knobhead like I can't <laughs> shut up about film yeah so eventually that's going to lead to you know networking yeah. that's just kind of the person that I am I kind of shoehorn it into it awkwardly. But I got jobs through that. So I've Hi, I'm a bit of a knobhead. Can you add me to your network? <laughs> so you're and now I, my LinkedIn, I get 20 <laughs> notifications a day and they're all useless, but yeah. So uh, I think kind of coming to the end of the conversation now, I think it's really interesting you were talking about earlier with creating from such a young age. And I think I'd like you to go into a little bit more about the sorts of things that your mum was showing you in terms of films at that time because I feel like knowing you for quite a long time now and you've I feel like you've always had an interesting perspective on these things as having two parents that your dad is the director of a museum and your mum is can't remember the official well she was a librarian yeah and she did film at university and but they're, they're both the history is in archaeology right oh yeah yeah they did yeah. Um, well she dropped out of film and did archaeology at university as did my dad yeah Uh, and I I think it's a really interesting perspective you have as somebody who both your parents are interested in history and art and I I remember coming around your house uh, 
probably end of second year of uni, right? And your mum just bringing out this book of just Bolshevik art from the Russian Revolution and just thinking, this this stuff is so interesting. And I think you said that from a young age, your parents were probably showing you things that... That's that icebreaker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She was texting me that stuff after. I was like, this is, this is really interesting. Talk a little bit about having that perspective of, of being influenced by your parents in that way and like does that still influence you now because i think there's not a lot of people that could probably say their parents are showing them those kinds of films when they're young or that um, that, that kind of art yeah it's definitely shaped who i am um more in a sense that i have they've definitely instilled in me a curiosity yeah which is i'm i'm most grateful for they seem very intrinsically motivated to do what they do yeah i mean i look up to my dad as someone who has had a dream and actualized that dream as someone i mean he it took a few different turns to get there but he tells me the story of how when he was a kid he went to the museum in wiltshire the wiltshire heritage museum and was like i love this stuff the the bronze age he's obsessed with the bronze age i mean that's his area of expertise and he was like this is the best bronze age collection in the uk and at the time he was like one day i'm gonna work in this museum and this is you know and then 30 40 years later he threw a lot of you know working in london with the government all these things working with unesco he eventually became the director of the museum that when he was a kid he said he was gonna work for wow so and that really inspires me as someone he followed his dream all the way down and yeah i mean he he's done it better than anyone i know has and he loves what he does every day he works you know too much as my mum would say um you know because he, he just but does he see it as work that's the thing well no think? not really no yeah. he just loves every minute of it which yeah um so yeah and he very much instilled in me the i mean he's definitely my parents have been a yeah, I'm very privileged to be in a position where they've been a kind of like a landing pad. Like they yeah. they'll they support me in a lot of ways, you know, financially if things go wrong, things like that. They they support me and and they believe in you know, letting me do what I want to do even when it looked like it was stupid to do a film degree and yeah. like yeah. Which I think I think that can't really be quantified to be honest because I think there would be so many parents that would and and some people would argue for good reason, you know, to oh, yeah, to yeah. Oh, yeah. put their children off of that path, you know. And I think I mean sometimes I'm like, why didn't I do a you know a a degree that was not yeah. exactly what I'm doing now, so I had something to fall back on because I don't feel like I have something to fall back on really. I yeah. But do do you think at the time that do you reckon as a kid maybe when you didn't understand that what you were saying earlier about that you couldn't imagine your, yourself doing anything else do you think that's maybe what your parents saw at that time and why they maybe didn't push back on you pushing you to do anything else because yeah. they thought what well, if he seems like he really enjoys it yeah definitely yeah because I think I, I think that the kind of rational quote unquote rational concern I think a parent would have at that time as I know with the best will in the world I imagine I would at that time to be honest would be that what if my son isn't interested in this in five years and he's gone down a path or something like that's that that's true yeah. so do you, do you think that your parents at that time they just saw something in you because you are probably of all the people I know I think you probably are one of the most intrinsically motivated to do what you do in terms <laughs> of you do it it's, it's true though it is, I think it is true in terms of just doing it for a raw passion for it and I think if your parents could see that from a young age, do you think that's sort of part of why? Or do you think your parents are generally just very laid back about those things? In, yeah, they in don't general? give a shit. So. <laughs> no. Um, I I mean, I haven't actually specifically asked them this, yeah. but I think they were definitely, they, they definitely saw the passion. And my mum has the same passion for film. Like my, the best film watching partner I have is my mum. Like I, when I go home, we just catch up on all the films that we haven't watched. Like, we just watch endless films yeah. and we'll watch weird shit. Like I've watched too many weird sex scenes with my mum <laughs> to the point where it's kind of, they don't mean anything anymore. That's a nice breaker. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's true. I've watched a lot of sex scenes with my mum. <laughs> weird ones. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> which is something weird yeah apart from yeah sorry I just usually when I go home I watch normal sex scenes with my mum <laughs> I bet you don't even do that <laughs> no no so yeah we very much bond over these shared interests um and yeah they, they push that yeah I, I I haven't talked to them about what their thought pattern was in yeah. terms of letting me do that I mean if it feels like you've kind of inferred it there or it feels like that would be a, an educated guess that if you and your mum have like a shared passion yeah. if she's into it that much and can see that you're getting into it that much the fact that she is at her age and still just loves it and has that passion and sees that in your dad then if she sees it in you then what reason would she have to think that you're you're going to exactly. be any different you know yeah so. and you know we're we're all young like we have time to make mistakes maybe this you know I don't feel like it is now but maybe back in the you know when things were a bit more of a struggle I could be like oh this was a mistake and I'd make that mistake and choose something different because we're young and I think my mum and dad see that and they've never been one for like oh you need to earn lots of money do this do that they're they're kind of they're they're not they're not consumer. Yeah, and not, they aren't consumerist. They're not extr- extrinsically motivated, right? So, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Motivated by a desire, a passion for something, rather than money and status and, yeah, and everything else. Exactly. Yeah. So they've instilled that into me quite a lot. Yeah. I mean, I'm more consumerist than they are, but um, <laughs> and I hard have to, to be, hard to be part of our generation and not. Well, I yeah. think in a lot of ways, I have to unlearn some of the <laughs> stinginess sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> but. Um, yeah the innate frugality yeah exactly yeah i have to live a little (laughs) because they're monks and they (laughs) no but um yeah i definitely i think they saw that passion because i mean looking back at you know my formative years as we're talking about i feel like i definitely have that from the age of i mean beyond 15 like 12 it was brewing and that kind of stuck throughout that whole time like all I lived film for that long. I mean, I still do, essentially. I mean, more things, but, like, it's on my mind all the time. Like, so, I can't really escape from it, essentially. Yeah. I think that's that's it. Like, maybe Cherry if, on the top. Yeah, maybe yeah. if I, like, showed some plan B, like, some interest in a plan B, they yeah. might have pushed that as well, yeah. but yeah. I haven't. So, that's that's the crux of it, really. Yeah, and I, I, it sounds like that's as good a chance as any then that they've basically seen what you were saying earlier that maybe they couldn't imagine you doing anything else either maybe yeah. maybe that's kind of a, an approach if you couldn't see that then I mean passion in a sense <laughs> passion is a funny word but it is a, it is a yeah. form of delusion like you know throwing away everything else that's rational and focusing yeah. on one thing my love for film and creating and my wish my dream of being a filmmaker is delusional because yeah. it's it's a low pay career it's you know it's not everyone makes it I still haven't yeah. made I, I love my job but it's low paying and you know yeah. um, and it's delusional to, to go down this road and not have a solid backup plan in place like I'm I'm lazy and an idiot for not having a solid backup plan but it is kind of motivating like this is it's live or die on it you know but I think at the same time as well, though, it's, it's like you say that it's delusional to pursue that. But many people would say at the same time, isn't, isn't it not? Is it not a form of delusion to do something that you don't like? Because we're all deluded. <laughs> yeah, because it makes you money. Like, because I think if you're talking about the relationship between what's well, rational and what's yeah. irrational. Yeah. Like if you zoom out and you, you look at a lot of people who have pursued certain jobs because they feel it will get them ahead in life financially. I mean, from so many people's perspective, that's entirely irrational. You know, maybe your parents were just looking at it very philosophically, like what would be best for his happiness. And I know to a lot of people that sounds very kind of wishy-washy and like, oh, yeah, happiness, and- like you're not going to have any money. But no. think like we're only here for, and I know not to get into cliche, but you're only here for a short period of time, like to do something that you don't enjoy when you work most of your life. And I'm in, a, I'm very much in a privileged position where I can follow this, yeah. this path and you know make the mistakes and like if i you know grew up in a less secure situation then i probably would 
you know, follow av- other avenues to get to a secure place. But I'm, I am in a secure place, so I can follow this, you know, passion to its conclusion, and you know, move to London twice, fail, and feel like I can still do it because I have this support network behind me to do that. And you know, that's that's a very privileged position. <laughs> a very privileged position. Peter Piper picked a pickled pepper. Yeah. Peter Piper picked a privileged position. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that is as good a note as any to end what has been a really good conversation, mate. It's been really good having you on. No worries. uh, I I don't know how much of it is useful, but it's all good. Ah, well, intellectually stimulating nonetheless, I would hope. Rusty. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, purely for our enjoyment. Fuck the audience. <laughs> That's all you're getting. Don't care if you like it. This is one of our free free AM conversations done at eight PM. So yeah. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. all good. Yeah, so yeah, so you as an audience are in a privileged position <laughs> to be no. at the end of every episode, uh, I like to end it by asking I started at the beginning of the episode asking what are you doing? So at the end of every episode I like to ask what are you doing next? So plans for the future plug yourself what you're doing and uh let, lay it bare for all to see yeah so the job I, i'm loving the job i'm in i'm you know getting into it i'm creating edits i'm and i'm trying to move up in this this job yeah i've been in it for six months so i'm, I'm looking to develop so what sort of it. positions would that be moving into what well i mean at the, i'd started off as just an editor really and then i started doing shoots i'm basically getting more more and more in the involvement of creating planning the shoots and and creating work from myself i'm looking to take charge and and create more work and just be more involved in the production process in all areas yeah, and yeah. you know just just develop as a filmmaker within this job um, which yeah is a really exciting challenge like take charge of shoots yeah no just feel confident in in being placed in an environment and making content out of it so that's really exciting got a lot of events on the art calendar that we've got this year that we're we, you know we need to make content for so that's really fun challenges anything for the people to see anything for you to plug well I need to sort out my socials but um <laughs> <laughs> sort out my socials yeah <laughs> Yeah, you can see a lot of my work on the Carpenters Workshop Gallery Instagram and yeah. their website. And there's a design edit, which is an offshoot um, design magazine, online print magazine by them, which we get to be a m- bit more experimental with our our work. But also, I am looking to create more personal work. I'm, I'm talking to a few artists in the mo- at the moment and collaborating on a on a film, just exploring deep space. I'll leave it at that deep space well yeah deep space beyond you know outer reaches of the observable universe I'll just say that yeah Yeah. just like we've been doing in this conversation exploring deep space and I think on that note Simon Dawson thank you very much for coming on thank you been fun